Big Sky, Big Potential. In association with Mills and Reeve, this is Eastern Promise. Achieving more together. Welcome to episode 89 of the Eastern Promise podcast. This week, we continue our countdown to the Eastern Promise Food Science Summit next month by focusing on some unsung heroes of science. The success of scientists, whether in teaching or in research, depends in large measure on the work of laboratory technicians. The technician commitment aims to recognise the work they do, make it more visible across all disciplines. We'll join the research institutes on the Norwich Research Park in celebration of their technicians and hear from one of the East of England's scientific superstars, Professor Ben Garrard. And finally, flora is indeed abundant as we run through the east of England's favourite parks and gardens, as chosen by you in another crowd sorcery. Let's start with a simple fact. Without technicians, there would be no research, no advances, nothing. Add to that the fact that those of us with scientific qualifications, from GCSEs all the way to PhDs, needed a technician's help, whether we realised and appreciated that or not. The technician commitment aims to ensure visibility, recognition, career development and sustainability for technicians working in higher education and research across all disciplines. By signing the technician commitment, universities and research institutes pledge themselves to tackling the key challenges affecting their technical staff. I was proud to see that our region's universities, the University of Cambridge, the University of East Anglia, Anglia Ruskin University and the University of Essex along with many of our research institutes, including the John Innes Centre, Earlham Institute, Babraham Centre and Wellcome Sanger Institute, are all signatories to the commitment, including my own alma mater. And so it was that last October, I joined researchers at the John Innes Conference Centre to celebrate the role of technicians and to hear from academic, conservationist, broadcaster and author Ben Garrard. Here's a flavour of the event. I'm Jim Lipscomb, Senior Research Assistant in the Genomics Pipelines Group at the Earlham Institute. I specialise in liquid handling automation. So for those who are not aware, the Earlham Institute at the forefront of computational data-driven biology. We back up with high-performance sequencing platforms and other complementary technology, including liquid handling robots, um, which is what I do. Um, so we work on living systems from across the tree of life. And personally, I've worked on all kinds of things from bacteria and viruses and naked mole rats and pigeons and even some truly detestable things like strawberries. I use robots to move tiny amounts of liquid between vessels and to mix them and, and to heat them up and shake them and cool them and these sort of things and to do um, molecular biology assays. 
to make them more, um, more high throughput, safer, cheaper, faster. There's lots of reasons why we automate things. And I've been doing this for uh, a number of years. Um, so how did I get here? Well, my career inside started at the ripe old age of 32. Up to that point in my life, apart from a brief period at about the age of 15 when I knew everything, I didn't really know a great deal. I had very few skills and I didn't feel like I was contributing anything to the world in which I'd be raising my children. So I'd left school at 16. I hated school. I couldn't wait to get out. And I didn't go to college or university, anything like that. I took a job at the dry cleaners initially. That was my first ever job. And then for the next dozen or so years, I was serving pints in a pub, cooking steaks, making margaritas, that kind of thing. And that was my life. Uh, and I hated it. Uh, I did train as a computer network technician. Uh, that didn't work out for me. Turns out the people who do that job for a living are angels with infinite patience. I'm not one of those. So when I relocated back to Norfolk, I went looking for new opportunities where I could draw on the experiences I did have. I applied for 103 jobs in one month when I came back down here when I was unemployed. Uh, and I had one response. A door opened for me and Johnny in his centre and they let me try out for a job as a DNA sequencing operative. It was a, a temporary maternity cover post. Um, I knew nothing about DNA sequencing, but I was already interested in science, particularly in the mechanisms of evolution, so it wasn't a completely alien concept to me. And it was actually mostly a customer service job. So I was very familiar with 80% of the work, in a way, dealing with inquiries, occasional complaint, that sort of thing. But they had this sort of technical side, which I picked up and I really, really enjoyed. Very quickly also learnt that science and technology move a hell of a lot quicker than the hospitality industry does. Uh, in order to keep up, I had to, for the first time in my life, make a habit of learning new things. And with an amazing group of technicians, scientists and many others here at the Norwich Research Park to set up COVID testing facilities in a, in a hurry at the beginning of the pandemic. And that's one of the high points of my career. That was a wonderful occasion despite everything else that was bad about it. For me, it was great to see this community of scientists all coming together and working for a common goal. It was great. And seeing plant scientists apply their skills to that was brilliant. More recently also, I worked on a project using single-cell transcriptomics and genomics, as Anita described this morning, using very similar techniques to capture the genomes and transcriptomes of individual protists from wild water sources. Um, such as rivers and ponds and lakes, etc. So that's part of the Darwin Tree of Life project, um, which has the aim of sequencing all the genomes of eukaryotic organisms in Britain and Ireland. So that was in collaboration with the uh, University of Oxford. So I've worked on all kinds of things, and I love what I do. And uh, I'm always amazed when I think back that pouring a beer, it never occurred to me that the simple act of moving liquid from one vessel to another, which is basically what I do with my job. I program robots to do that. Uh, that. That simple act could be so important, not just in keeping me gainfully employed, but also in the advancement of human knowledge. And I feel very grateful every day for the opportunity to do that here at Norwich Research Park. And uh, the message I want to take home to you, what you take home really, is that you don't have to have a standard career, university, etc., PhD, to be working in science and contributing to the advancement of human knowledge um, that we're all working towards. And there's lots of other ways to do it. I always think, you know, that the treasure you end up with is not necessarily what you're digging for. Again, okay, I've ended up uh, very happy in a career um, that I never expected, uh, never imagined, and uh, I hope that happens to everybody in some way.
Thank you very much. I'm Lizzie Meadows. Good afternoon. I am the clinical liaison manager for the Quadrum Institute. I went to the Quadrum February 2020, initially for three months, and I'm there nearly four years later. And I think the COVID pandemic had something to do with that. So I'm here to, today to tell you about my journey. I'm certainly not STEM. I didn't study STEM A-levels. I did English, History of Art, French, RE. And um, initially I trained as a nurse. And then I specialised in cardiology and cardiothoracic medicine. And I worked at the Brompton Hospital in London. And just around the corner was Chelsea School of Art. So in the evenings, I'd go and do history of art courses. And um, I was there for about a year and a half. And then I moved up to Oxford and went to the John Radcliffe Hospital to work on a very busy cardiothoracic surgical unit. Um, but those of you who know Oxford will know about the Ashmolean Museum and the Museum of Modern Art. And it wasn't long before I found myself working at the Museum of Modern Art on my days off. Um, and it got to the point where I thought, you know, I've got to do something. Um, I really want to take my art history a little bit further. And um, so I came to UEA and I spent three years in the Sainsbury Centre. And um, I became the first student guide, which was great. And then um, when I graduated, I went to Christie's. I was very lucky to get a job in the ethnographic department at Christie's Auction House in London. And then from there, I went back to work at the Museum of Modern Art in Oxford um, in the education department. And I kept up to date with my nursing. I kept up to date with my um, continuous professional development. So I would bank nurse at weekends when I was working at Christie's and I'd work on intensive care units, critical care units, theatre recoveries, etc. And it sort of stood me in good stead. At one point, I was invited to take part in an expedition to Everest. There was a joint forces cleanup expedition in 2000. And um, I was invited to go along as the nurse. So I did. And then that kind of led on to the next stage of my career, which was in writing and doing some PR. I worked for, a, I wrote as a freelance journalist for about three or four different magazines in London. I had my daughter in 2002 and a combination of being able to work as a freelance writer and doing bank nurse and intensive care units meant that I could carry on working and around her. Um, and then we moved up to Norfolk in 2005 and I had to say goodbye to nursing at that point. So then I focused on the PR and I worked for Vaywood Literary Festival and um, worked very closely with David Gilmore from Pink Floyd. And also I did some voluntary work for Lowestoft Air Festival and um, interviewed Dame Vera Lynn for, I think it was the 70th anniversary of the Battle of Britain, which was fabulous. I went and spent a couple of hours with her down in her home in Sussex and she was such a lovely lady. And then, in 2011, I got a call asking if I'd be interested in doing some communications for the NHS. There was a big merger taking place between Norfolk and Suffolk Mental Health Services to create Norfolk and Suffolk Foundation Trust. And um, so I went on board as their um, strategic change communications lead. And it was someone to really deal with the internal communications. So they're keeping the doctors and nurses um, and the other major stakeholders aware of what was going on. And I did that for about eight or nine months. And I was sitting in a board meeting one day and um, someone was looking for um, a clinical implementation lead to drive forwards a completely wacky project called electronic prescribing. Um, and this is going back to 2012. And um, 
And I put my hand up and said, you know, I could do that because I'm a nurse and I understand prescribing processes and I can talk to people and I can talk to your, you know, the, your cohort that you want to engage with. So I got the job doing that and I did it for, I was clinical implementation lead for six months before the project manager left. And um, so I took that on as well and I did uh, the PRINCE2 project management course. Um, and then from then on went and did something called Agile Project Management and Change Project Management as well. And I was there headhunted head to go over to Liverpool to work on electronic prescribing, setting up chemotherapy regimens. So again, very, very different from where I kind of started, but bringing together my, um, you know, nursing, my clinical skills, my communication skills. As a project manager, I've also worked for um, Well Pharmacy in a big collaboration with WH Smith to open the first of its kind pharmacy within a WH Smith store at an airport. So I led on that and we, we went live at Gatwick on the 1st of April 2019. Fast forwards to February 2020 and I came to deliver a lab information management system for the NRP biorepository. So the biorepository had got um, 2.4 million pounds of BBSRC funding to make it gold standard for collecting um, human tissue samples for research um, into disease and health. I've been there about a month and we went live on the 23rd of March 2020, which was the day that we went into lockdown. And it was also the day that the Quadrum had been announced as being the regional lead for genome sequencing for COVID. An email went around, they were looking for a project manager or someone to program manage, and I put my hand up. And I thought, well, we've just gone live with this lab information management system. You know, maybe we can use that. And um, anyway, that was the start of a big journey. So I worked with the genome sequencing team. We brought the biorepository on board. Biorepository is an NNUH NHS department. The Quadrum Institute isn't, and there are ethics challenges for that, for sequencing and matching data. So having the biorepository there that can manage the metadata and then um, enable the Quadrum to match up their positive samples with the metadata uh, meant that we had a very quick win. And out of 130 countries that were sequencing around the world at this time, the Quadrum was ranked as number four. So after America, Australia, and England as a whole. And as Jim said, his work with, um, you know, it, during the, the pandemic was probably something he's most proud of. It was certainly um, something I've been most proud of as well. I think that was my career highlight. Um, so I continue to work with the biorepository. Um, I've also been working with King's College London and the NNUH on an AI big data extraction tool called Cogstack. Never in a million years did I think I'd get involved with AI, but I have. Um, and we've got it to a point now where the NNUH has taken it on and is um, working it up to use it for data preparedness exercises for when they implement their electronic patient record. So that has value. Um, and the other thing I'm working on at the moment is a faecal microbiota therapy unit, which is in build over at the Quadrum. And there'll be more about that at another time. And what I'd say to you is you, I've had very much of a collect, an eclectic career. Um, I've been very much driven by opportunities. Um, and I'd say to you, you know, don't hold yourself back. Believe in yourself and be open to opportunities because you don't know where they'll lead. Thank <laughs> you.
Hello, my name's Lewis Hollingsworth. Yeah, I've worked in horticultural services for, since 2013, so a few years now. I came straight from college, Eastern in fact, uh, doing my BTEC Level 3 Diploma in Horticulture. Before that I'd always been in, uh, interested in plants and stuff, so I've got quite a big indoor plant collection at home, as well as like a veg plot that I attempted this year. When I first started, I was under the supervision of one of my um, previous colleagues, looking after one glass house. Back then, a lot of manual labour, as in like watering, simple tasks around like soil mixing as well. It was all done manually. So yeah, in the 10 years, we've had quite a lot of automation. So whereas before it was like watering plants by hand, which should take quite a long time, especially in the summer months. Summer months we've had recently have been quite intense. You quite often go around like twice, three times a day. But now we have a system in place which uh, it's called Ebb and Flood. And it's all um, done with the press of a button now. So basically all the benches fill up from underneath. And it just means that I can spend my time doing other things. And there's plenty of other things to do. <laughs> I was given that one glass house. I then uh, progressed to looking after CERs, which are controlled environment rooms. I was basically growing Arabidopsis and uh, Nicotiana benthamania in, um, in there. I was only in there briefly until I um, amassed a few uh, glass houses under my supervision. But also we have a few polytunnels on site and they're all grown for cereals, but also brassicas and ash trees. They're currently working on the um, ash dieback, which is quite a big project, so that we've got polytunnels for them. There's also a collection of polytunnels which are currently being installed with uh, heating and lighting. It's going to be really beneficial because uh, some of the glass houses are like 40 years old now. They're looking a bit decrepit in some parts, but with the plans that you can see online, it's going to look pretty high tech. Yeah, on the ground floor, we have this uh, soil mixing capabilities with a high tech soil mixing machine and pot and tray fillers. So we do all our soil mixing on site now, whereas before we'd import um, ton bags of compost. We, can now, we now have the capabilities of mixing our own for various uh, crops. So there's a lot of um, cereals on site. So our main soil mix is cereal mix. So as you can see here, it's all done on like a, um, a belt system where it goes around and we can just uh, include like um, ingredients to our mixes, such as osmocote, low release fertilizer. Um, and pH, um, uh, dolomite, which adjusts the pH and uh, makes it so that the plants grow happily, which is what we want. Plant maintenance as well. We, we, do, we have a ticket system whereas, whereas uh, uh, any user in our glass houses can request their plants to be maintained. Potting, staking and tying, which we do in-house. Um, you can literally, from your office, put in a ticket for us to do the work for you. And you should come and see your plants looking as you would hope. That's, that's basically what I do, really. So thank you. Cheers. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the keynote address from Professor Ben Garrod. So a little bit 
about me very quickly. I do, I work at uh, UEA, but I live in Bristol. I am backwards and forwards all the time, so I'm an evolutionary biologist. I specialize in human evolution and work a lot across Western Africa now especially and look at chimpanzees, gorillas, the relationship between them and us. I look at their mental health, I look at their, look at their conservation, um, but also work with a whole bunch of different species in different places around the world. I grew up in Norfolk, very, very proud to be a Norfolk boy, and oh my God, I was weird growing up. I was such a strange child. I'm a weird adult, but I was like a weird child. I really was. And I think that's something we need to celebrate as well, being weird. I mean, I, I would like to think there's nobody normal in this room. Um, I don't need hands up, but equally, don't try and be normal, especially if you're listening. You don't want to be normal. It's just boring. Status quo is crap. And I wanted to be a medic for years. I really was obsessed that I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a medic, and I worked in a, in a mortuary for, for all the way through college. Again, I was told you I was weird. Um, really enjoyed my time there, ironically, but it didn't resonate. I just didn't like what I did because it was in a white room with white ceilings and white floors and white walls. The work I did was fascinating, and it was what really appealed to me as a scientist, this sense of exploration and problem-solving and almost like being a detective. Uh, it's very childlike to say that, but us scientists, we are solving problems and delving into mysteries. I didn't want to be in a white room, and we shouldn't all want to be the same sort of carbon cutouts of each other and, and what works to be a scientist. And for me, it was, I went home one day and I said, I just want to work in green. I want to be around green stuff and go to, go to far-flung far places and do these wonderful things. And I didn't know how to do this. And my mum said something that completely stuck with me ever since. It was just go and try things. What's the very worst that can happen? which is a massive thing to say to someone young growing up, or to any of us who aren't so young anymore, but this concept of changing and just trying things. And nobody goes to an all-you-can-eat buffet. I mean, going to an all-you-can-eat buffet is, is disaster anyway. But you never eat just the first thing you see and just have a massive pile of that first dish. Otherwise, what's the point of going? And I think our careers in science are a little bit like that. And actually hearing from some of you today, we've all got these circuitous routes that we've come into science. And we should celebrate that because we've found our way, we've found our passion. If we haven't found our passion yet, it's still never too late. My oldest undergrad started at 74. She's my favorite ever undergrad. She was amazing um, and completely inspired me and understood, helped me understand that it really is never too late. So as Andrew said, I now work at, at UEA, but I also um, uh, write science books for kids. I work on TV. I do work with some famous faces, such as Attenborough occasionally, um, and do lots of radio work as well. Because I think engaging science and working with a wider audience. They say the word audience, and it sounds showbiz, but you're an audience right now. My students are audience. We're all an audience on different levels. But working with a broader audience to help engage science is one of the most important things, at least for me, I think we can do as, as scientists. But I'm here today to talk about science for all, making science more than scientists. I've got a lot of friends who are teachers and heads and, and deputies around the country and quite a lot in the Norfolk area. And I went and gave a talk really pretentiously um, to a school just outside Yarmouth a few years ago. And I had this amazing PowerPoint of all the places that I'd been, the Arctic and dive with tiger sharks and working in the Caribbean and polar bears and, and gorillas and orangutans. And I did a little slideshow of all the different animals for the kids to guess where they were and inspire them. They could do anything. And to start with, I sort of onboarded them gently and said, right, what's this animal? It's a spiky animal about this big? 
waddles around at night. Not a single kid knew what it was. It's like, oh, that's, that's weird. Okay, well, it's a hedgehog. We'll try the next one. Big stripy thing. Badger. Didn't know what badger was. And this was really scary and really hit me. It's like, why am I trying to show these kids things that are from around the world? And they couldn't identify what these animals were. I mean, most of them knew what a fox was. None of them, I, think, I think maybe one or two had seen a fox. Fewer than 50% of that group who lived just outside Great Yarmouth had ever been to their local beach. And that was really scary. So we completely tossed away the whole of that lesson and just worked on what it means to be a scientist, what it means to be part of your local environment. And then I suddenly clicked and I thought, right, okay, let's do the whole thing. Draw a scientist. And they all drew an old white guy with crazy fuzzy hair in a lab coat. And yes, they exist, and I've worked with a few of them, and they're great. But if I look around here right now, I can't see him. He's not in here. He might be. I just can't see him. But look, we're all scientists. We all work with science in different ways and shapes and forms. That should be reflected. And the next question that really scared me, my mate, who's the the head there, uh, asked. She said, how many of you think you're allowed to be scientists when you get older? None of the girls thought they could be scientists. None of the boys thought they were able to be scientists. That's terrifying. That doesn't reflect on those kids or their families or even the school. That reflects on scientists and our scientific community. We need to be more open. And when we talk about things like the pandemic, we've had that talked about today a few times and how, how enabling it was for the scientific community to come together. What we really needed to do as well is to onboard the other community, to onboard the other audience, because of all the anti-vax stuff and all the anti-COVID isn't on the naive audience and isn't their arrogance or ignorance. It's because we don't onboard people. And as a, as a scientific community, we've had a really good run of science belonging to scientists. And that needs to change massively so. We're all trying to change things. No, the, I think the whole idea of being a scientist to purely study something for the sake of studying something is, is a dying art, luckily. And I think that sort of isolationist approach to science where it is just for scientists and it's just kept behind a wall... <coughs> is going. There aren't many like that left, really pleased to say. Instead, it's accessibility. It's helping the public understand science. I do a lot of outreach with kids, very small kids, and talk about dinosaurs. I don't always like dinosaurs, I've got to say. I mean, they, they drive me nuts a little bit. But actually, it's a gateway. If kids can understand, I talk about synapsids and diapsids and pentadactyl limbs and evolutionary biology and all these weird and wonderful context-based stories and, and this narrative... It's engaging a science narrative. It's onboarding science literacy. And we've not just seen through the pandemic where science doesn't just belong to us in this room or just to those working in these amazing labs and teaching spaces we have around here. Something I hear loads is when people come to me and say, I just, I just, I don't really do science. Oh, okay. You're breathing, right? Yeah. Okay, you're doing science. This whole separation, there's me being flippant there. Anyone who thinks we don't do science or they don't do science, it's because it's not stirring a test tube with some sort of crazy Bunsen burner based experiment underneath. Again, that's us that's portrayed that. And the media portrays that really badly as well. So when you go home later, please just Google scientist and Google images. It's eureka moments with crashes and bangs and explosions and singed hair. I don't work in a lab, but I'm pretty sure that's not on good lab practice, first of all. But equally, that's not what science or scientists should be. And this sense of that we can onboard different people and really show that science isn't just about me and my scientific colleagues who are scientists, then that's surely a better thing. And at a time when, it's going to sound I've gone from this to out here somewhere, at a time when 17% of British mammal species are threatened with extinction right now, um, 
We've finally seen it's the hottest September ever recorded, just gone. We've got viruses coming in left, right and centre. It's not all doom and gloom here. But actually, if we're going to solve these problems and address some of these crises, we can't do it as scientists alone. These are global problems affecting all of us. And when we expect other people to join in, when we expect people to uptake vaccines and to not have an issue with GM food and all these things, we have that responsibility to make that happen. And the first step of that is realizing that as a community, we're not just scientists. We are all the different people in these rooms, this room right now and those listening on, online, as well as all the others, as well as every single person you see on a day-to-day -day basis or who provides the equipment or who helps grow the plants or who does any of the thousand jobs that help any of us achieve that's scientific outcome, but that is not just scientists. So yeah, I think in order to sum up, science is amazing. Science is really cool, but science isn't about scientists. Scientists, is, scientists are about the questions. I'm going to name drop. I nearly didn't name drop, but I'm going to. I was having lunch with David Attenborough one day, <laughs> and um, I asked him, I said, why do you always wear the blue and the khakis. Why? He said, well, I, I don't want people to look at me. I, said, okay. and, I mean, David's got a fairly big ego, I'm not going to lie, and he loves storytelling and he likes to be the centre of attention in a lovely way because he's been doing it for so long and he's so charismatic. And he said, it's not about me. It's all the stuff that I do. You should be looking behind me. You shouldn't be going, what am I wearing today? What shoes has he got on? How's his hair? So David always David has about nine shirts that are exactly the same, and his daughter sews a little bit of a broken shirt just underneath here to make a little sleeve where his microphone fits. And he's got about six or seven pairs of the same khakis. If Marks and Spencer ever goes bust, David's going to have to be naked. <laughs> Seriously. But I love that sense. It's not about David. The most famous naturalist, the natural historian, the best nature's the nation's granddad is all about, it's not about me, it's about the story we're trying to tell, it's about what I'm trying to show you. And that should be science as well. Scientists, science isn't about the scientists, it's about the question. And everyone, everyone who makes that question possible, or everyone who helps create that answer, they're the ones we should be looking at. Thank you very much. My thanks to Ben Garrod. To all the technicians working so hard across our region, and to friend of the show, Dr. Penny Hundleby, who invited me along in the first place. Eastern Promise salutes you all. And now, this. You don't have to be Alan Titchmarsh to recognise the value of a well-tended lawn. So join me now for an audio stroll through the east of England's finest parks and gardens, as chosen by you in another welly-wanging... Crowd Sorcery. Yes, Crowd Sorcery. Parks come in all shapes and sizes. From pocket parks to country parks. And so, garden against walking on the grass, let's see where in the east of England you like to park yourselves. <laughs> Do you hear what I did there? Yes. Yes, you clearly did. A top-flight crowd sorcerer goes first this week. 
Dr. Tammy Dugan, Life Sciences and Healthcare Partnerships Lead at the University of Cambridge. Says Tammy, I like to spend a Friday lunchtime in Lammasland, Cambridge, Riverside Walk and lunch at Cotter's. Oh, I do love a good eatery recommendation thrown in, Tammy. And agreeing with me is Tarquin Bennett-Coles, Senior Partner at SCI Partners, Advisor for Little Bean Journey, Pro Bono Mentor for the Homerton Changemakers, and Careers in Healthcare Supporter for the MBA and EMBA students at the Judge Institute. Says he, that sounds like a great option, Tammy. <laughs> He's not wrong. Our good friends and sponsors of Eastern Promise, Legal Wizards Mills and Reeve, are incredibly fortunate in that one of their offices in this region overlooks the Cambridge University Botanic Gardens. A fact that's not lost on Deborah Dawson, bridging legal solutions with new partnerships at Mills and Reeve. Says she, it's Cambridge University Botanic Gardens for me every time. I love the summer, the autumn and, in particular, the festive winter lights event that they hosted last Christmas. Just amazing colours. I hope I can catch the lights this Christmas, Deborah, and it's a fantastic garden indeed, really beautifully kept. Meanwhile, suffering from a surfeit of choice is Richard Powell, OBE, Environmental and Charity Advisor and Independent Chair. Richard writes, So many to choose from. I'll be in danger of forgetting one or being told off if I don't mention one. Richard, instant absolution for such an error is one benefit of being a crowd sorcerer. He continues, Houghton Hall Gardens are superb and the gardeners at Felbrig are stunning. The RSPB Wildlife Garden at Flatford Mill is inspiring and RHS Hyde Hall in Essex is fantastic. The Bishop's Garden in Norwich is so tranquil. In fact, all the Bishop's Gardens in East Anglia are so wonderfully tranquil, it must go with the job. A controversial mention, of course, would be Villandry in the Loire-France and Heidi Smith's garden at Moulin de Pensol near Limoges. Truly relaxing and, of course, Thornham Magna Hall near Dis or Giffords Hall Vinery near Bury St Edmunds. But I go back to Houghton as a garden just to sit on a summer's day as truly restful. <laughs> I'll stop now. Now admit it, Richard. You put those French gardens in to test my pronunciation, didn't you? Huh. Well, tres bon. Oh, mon Dieu. Attention à l'espace. Please mind the gap. A true urban choice now from Tom Abbott, Green Easy Briam Assessor. As a Norwich boy, Mousehold Heath has special memories for me doing cross-country running while a student at Norwich School. Well done, Tom. I have to say I've tried very, very hard to excise all memories of my cross-country runs from my mind. Westwood Ho from Norwich, as Adam Peed, talent and business development strategist, flies the flag for Norfolk's largest town. The walks in Kings Lynn is a great park, Mike. Really well looked after and a great spot in the summer especially. The park at Sandringham Estate is awesome as well. Brilliant for the little ones and the dog. Thank you, Adam, the Peed family and your little dog too. And now, friend of the show, Michelle Chambers, business development manager at Chaplin Farrant. She says, 
As you mentioned Eaton Park in Norwich, a great park. Do you know, I did. I did mention that. She continues. Much of my later childhood spent weaving in and out of the benches in the southwest quadrant pavilion on my bike, playing frisbee on the playing fields. Just one pound to go on the miniature railway, a great boating lake, and played foot golf more recently too. Ah, love a miniature railway. Love any kind of railway. But wait! Michelle brings news! We now have breaking news. Chaplin Farrant are also delighted to be refurbishing the changing room facilities at the Grade 2 listed Southwest Quadrant Pavilion at Eaton Park for Norwich City Council. That's fantastic news and a great project there in a wonderful park. And finally, my podcast buddy from the Civic QEA podcast, Dr. Johanna Forster, Associate Professor in the Environment and International Development at the University of East Anglia, adds Fairhaven in South Walsham is beautiful. Do you know, we go every Christmas to see the lights there and toast marshmallows after the trail. We always go around twice just to see if it was as lovely the second time around. And it always has been. Also great choices for gardens lit beautifully this Christmas are National Trust Properties, Anglesey Abbey at Stokeham Quay, north of Cambridge and Ickworth House at Horringer near Bury St Edmunds. And that's it. That's all there is for episode 89 of the Eastern Promise podcast. Join me for our next step towards the mighty Eastern Promise Food Science Summit entitled Building the Norwich Food Science Supercluster. What will it be? Wait and see. Uh, listen. Uh, yes, that's it. Wait and listen. Until then, it only remains for me to thank the wonderful people at the John Innes Conference Centre, especially science supernova Ben Garrard. Andrew Stronach of the Quadrum Institute, Dr. Penny Hundleby of the John Innes Centre, Dr. Samantha Fox of the Youth STEM Awards, and Saskia Hervey of the Earlham Institute. What a team! Thank you too to Engineer 49, a man who studied under a wide range of qualified professionals, including Dr. John, Dr. Feelgood, Dr. Alban, Dr. Dre, and of course, Dr. Hook. I can't comment on rumours that he was the one with the eye patch and the castanets. Lastly, thank you to you. You could be doing anything with your time and you're choosing to spend it listening to Eastern Promise. I am truly grateful. So, until next time, bye for now. To hear other episodes of the Eastern Promise podcast and to find out more about what we do, go to our website at easternpromise.org. UK. Eastern Promise is a Priors Croft production in association with Mills and Reeve. Achieving more together. Nettoyage dans l'allée 5. Au revoir.